season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. We were way behind. What was once the epicenter of the climbing universe, Yosemite Valley, had gorged itself on its own legend and gotten lazy. Dull. Slow. The European climbers would show up and send the hardest routes in the valley on site and move on to other destinations. Destinations that were less, well, dated. And this version of climbing, held back by its adherence to outdated ethics and rules, threatened to become the entire identity of American climbing. But there were a few mavericks, clad in lycra and sporting mullets, who weren't having it. They would show up in the valley and clean up the old projects while the locals vandalized their cars and hurled threats, because the old hates it when the new comes crashing through the gates. But in reality, the old had plenty of opportunity to just open those gates. They chose not to. Instead, they added new locks. And so Todd Skinner, Christian Griffith, Lynn Hill, and Alan Watts each brought their own version of a battering ram. And perhaps the most potent of all the battering rams was wielded by Watts. Not only would he fully embrace rat bolting and hang dogging, and in doing so, become a candidate for the best climber in the country, but he would recognize the hidden and plain sight potential of an old aid and crack climbing area in Oregon. He would climb the harder cracks and then turn his attention to the steep faces in between. He would envision, clean, and put bolts into harder routes than the U.S. had seen, connecting smaller and smaller features and moving further and further away from the stagnation of Yosemite Valley. And then they came. First the Australians, and the British, the French. Throughout the 1990s and beyond, the best climbers in the world would come to Smith Rock, Oregon to test themselves on the routes that Watts had authored. It was never a question, they had to. These were the routes that would prove they wanted it, prove they had what it took. And some of the most staunch of the American traditionalists would follow because they too had to prove their mettle. Because Alan Watts wasn't just bolting roots, he was building the future. And in doing so, writing history. Alan, welcome to Written in Stone. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have so many questions for you about that time in Smith Rocks, you know, in the in the 90s when when everything was just exploding. But to start, I have a question I have to ask you uh, that popped up in my research. And I don't know if you've read Ron Fawcett's autobiography. Have you read that? No, I haven't. 
Well, in it, he writes about Raventor. He says, I've always thought of the crag as being a bit of a scruff. There's a story, I don't know if it's true, that visiting American climber Alan Watts drove past Raventor on his first visit, discounting the place as not worth the bother. He just kept going, expecting something more worthwhile around the corner. Is that true? Well, I was there with Chris Grover. I mean, it actually is true. It wasn't that we just drove by <laughs> thought, thinking this couldn't possibly be it. It was just because we had in our mind that it was such a, you know, a, a big influential place. And yeah, yeah. so we just drove by and, and, and it was like, that couldn't have been it. And then a few minutes later, it's like, that must have been it. So we circled back and <laughs> turned around and sure enough, that was Raven's tour. I love that. I love that its reputation and its legend is so big, but in reality, it's so small and scrappy that you just didn't even recognize it as what it was. Yeah, I mean, it's actually good climbing, but it's not unlike just driving by a road cut, you know, yeah, and, and, totally. and art climbing, you know, where it's just, it's not something that you expect. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> I had to know if that was true. Um, I want to start here with Jibé Tribu. Um, because it seems like it would be really easy for you to hold a grudge. Um, but in interviews and when I saw you speak this summer, you you spoke of him with, with the greatest of respect. And I'm curious why. Well, I, I have tremendous respect for GB. I mean, yeah. uh, most of what he did, like really he played a huge role in um, – kind of validating what was going on at Smith Rock. And, you know, I did, there were a couple routes that I had prepared to bolt or not to be, just do it, very famous routes. Um, and I just openly like, hey, these routes are here. They're, they're too hard for me, do them. And he, I mean, by that time, I started to identify with, um, I mean, early on in my climbing, I was it was all about me. But over time, anything that happened at Smith Rock sort of felt like it elevated everything, including mm. myself. So him doing to bolt or not to be, him just doing just do it. It kind of felt like it was all um, we were all part of the same team. I was it was the Smith Rock team, and so he was elevating Smith Rock. So yeah, yeah, and I he was um, very influential. I mean, just. Uh, how he came in there and, um, you know, he was not growing up with all the controversy that we were facing in the United States. Right. And so right. you just see what somebody can do if they're not weighed down by all that baggage. Wow. That's really kind of a, an amazing level of self-awareness and of, uh, awareness of what's going on at the time to have, um, that, I mean, that even in those done. times you yeah, I could have, I mean, I did, to bolt or not to be, and he did it in 86. I repeated it in 89. I could have um, said, no, stay off yeah. that route. I want that to be my route. I would have done it. But to bolt or not to be done by me in 1989 would not have had the influence mm. that GB doing it in 1986 had. That route needed to be yeah. done when it was done. And the same thing for just do it. I never did just do it. But again, those things had to be done when they were done. They were time sensitive. Wow, that's that's fascinating to me, Alan. And I know there was one situation, and I think lots of people get these these situations confused. Um, you know, I've heard lots of people say Tribu stole 
just do it from Alan Watts. He told him to stay off of it. But that was bad man that 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 happened with, correct? Yeah. Um, I mean, that was kind of too bad. That that was kind of surprised me that he he did that. Um, it, it was in 1990, I think. And I had he was at Smith Rock and I just told him, um, you know, he was just starting to work on just do it. And I, you know, we were friends and I, I went up to him and I said, you know, GB, go at it with with uh, just do it. And, um, you know, I gave you to bolt and all I ask in return <laughs> is just let me have this one route because I was really mm. close to doing it. And I had was having problems with my fingers that kind of never that only got worse. So I was having to take um, extended periods of time off. But I, um, you know, had fallen on the last hard move of uh, what came to be known as bad man. And he um, he was like, OK. And it wasn't until a month after he did it that some friends I had a friend call me up and say, yeah, you know what GB did? Mm. I just wanted to say I thought that was really really bad but he had actually flown from paris to redmond spent about a week there and flew back so he made an entire trip from europe that's my understanding did did bad man not just do, to it, do right? bad man not to do yeah, just yeah, yeah. do it okay just do it came later and it took him a lot of tries but bad man it was a it was pretty clear what his intentions were yeah do you have any idea why like do you what do you think was motivating him to to just go behind your back that way he was very competitive. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really know. I don't think it was, um, you know, and I haven't talked to him since. I mean, when he was back and did just do it, we were, we weren't fighting or anything. We, we, yeah. we never really talked about that. And I haven't talked to him for years. I'm not sure what went through his mind. Um, I think he has felt, feels that in maybe in Europe, that would have been, um, maybe the ethic in Europe, maybe what he, that would have been okay. In the right. U.S., you know, that was before red tagging. But mm-hmm. again, it wasn't like I had put some red tag at the base of the route. It was, you know, a, spe- a specific conversation, you know, please leave me yeah. this route. So That's interesting. You just, what you just said sparked something, you know, he, he had this, like, he seemed to be driven by the competition with like Ben Moon um, you know, he and Ben Moon sparred a little and he, you know, there was competition between he and uh, his other, you know, the other French climbers, Didier and uh, Patrick and all of these folks. So maybe, maybe he was just latching on to that, that competition. Like I need this to drive me and didn't even notice it as a, as a hurtful thing. I suspect that might well be true. I mean, he was mm. really driven. I mean, he was very good, very talented. Um, I don't think he was the most talented climber of his generation, but I think he worked as hard, if not harder than anybody. Yeah. The, you know, that does, that does bring up something like he, he certainly worked hard at his climbing. Um, but I, I have to like point out that developing these routes, especially at Smith is hard work. Um, so swooping in and just doing routes that have already been developed. Um, you know, if, if that were happening today, that would be like Jonathan Segrist goes and bolts a route and Adam Onder is just waiting in the shadows to sneak out and do the route as soon as Jonathan leaves, you know? Right. That holds climbing back. If, if yeah. you, I mean, for Smith Rock, it kind of marked the, the end of the golden age where once you realized, okay, well, we can't, 
you know, if you spend days preparing a route, it doesn't mean that you're the one that's going to do it. And if that's the way it is, then why go through the work? Because it took, I don't know, to bolt or not to be, I'd look through my notes and I had spent seven days preparing that before I ever got on it and climbed it. It took that long to figure out, you know, to clean off everything. And um, Badman was a mess. It was that agro wall was really dirty and every route there required a lot of cleaning. So again, mm. I put a lot of time into that cleaning it. So, yeah. Well, I I commend you on a number of levels here, Alan. It's you know number one, you know putting those roots up, putting the the work in to clean them up, and then number two, not holding a grudge and not having this continued animosity for Jibe, you know, swooping in and doing these roots. I mean, it's been 30 years if I'm holding on to a grudge. <laughs> sure, sure. But there are some people who would. <laughs> yeah, I'm just past that. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't go into this season like intentionally wanting to paint Tribu as a villain. Um, but the, the more, th- and I don't think he is a villain, you know, I don't, I don't think that at all. But in this, in this big story, he, he definitely fills that role quite a few times with like, Betting against Lynn Hill, I think, is a, a, a bad way to go on any occasion. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, going toe-to-toe with Ben Moon several times um, and yeah, antagonizing that, that situation. Yeah. And and then, you know, swooping in and, and doing these roots in Smith. So I'm curious, what was he like when it, you know, just as a person, when you were there climbing with him, you were friends. What what was the guy like? I thought he was a he was a really nice guy. I mean we um, hit it off. I met him in a climbing competition in the Pyrenees in September mm-hmm. of 1986. And by then, Smith Rock had just become, it was, it was on the map. I mean, he knew who I was. He knew, when I told him about Smith Rock, he, he said he'd already had, um, he said, well, I already have tickets. We're, mm. we're going next month uh, wow. to Smith Rock. And, and, um, when he was there, it was, I mean, I was in school at that point, so I wasn't around. I was in Eugene, and uh, so I wasn't there all the time. But it was just very positive. Um, he was a likable guy. Very focused, but I, again, I, he was respectful. He was, it's hard for me to think about who he was apart from from his climbing. But again, I... sure. He is somebody that made bunches of trips to Smith Rock, uh, and so it was always great to see him. Yeah, that's that's cool to hear. You know, I, I want to make sure I don't paint him totally as a a dark character throughout this season. You know, and I think this episode that that you haven't heard yet about Just Do It and Jibé Tribu, I don't think it really paints him as a villain. You know, it does point out the things he did that were maybe not so not so nice, but but I do think it really shows his like dedication and his work ethic and his drive uh, and his competitiveness, um, which I think are, you know, necessary for moving things forward. Yeah. I think there are times that his competitiveness, just kind of what made him good. He occasionally crossed the line of how people normally, you know, climbers, how we interact. And so um, he would occasionally just in his drive to, to be the best, would sometimes sure. step on some some people's toes and offend them somewhere along the way. 
Yeah, I'm sure I crossed a lot of lines and stepped on a lot of toes and offended a lot of people when I was in my 20s as well. Yeah, I think we all did unintentionally. <laughs> yeah. I, I think yeah. with GB, it was unintentional. I don't think he was an ass. I don't think he was uh, just like, yeah. you know, I, I'm sure it. Uh, I, at the time, I don't think it occurred to him when he was that he was doing something that would create some friction. Yeah. Well, when I started writing this episode, uh, I reached out to you via email uh, to try to clear up a few things that I had heard. And and this is where I think, you know, rumors just get perpetuated. You know, I've looked at articles in Climbing Magazine that, you know, from back then that perpetuate these rumors. Um, so uh, I'm curious to, and I, I would like to sort of set the record straight a little bit here. Um Number one, we already went over, which is Jibe didn't steal, just do it from you. I'm curious, though, was it an open project? Um, I've also heard Scott Franklin had sort of taken it over. What was the situation there? Well, I, I bolted the route for, um, it's the only route I ever bolted where it was basically a job. It was for NBC Sports World. They were doing a, a mm. story on trying three of the top climbers in the world trying to do a hard first ascent. At oh, Smithville. wow. So I, um, I had worked, it was with Mike Hoover, who did the survival of the fittest events. And yep. um, being a Smith Rock local, he called me up and said, hey, what about this? You know, I want to do this project. I want to bring Wolfgang Gulich in and Ron Kalk in, and the three of you team up to do a really hard route. And so... He, he told me, I, you know, if you're interested, I need you to pick the route. Mm. And just do it hadn't been bolted, but I, I knew about that. And I was thinking, this, this is the, the line. This is like the obvious, you know, great filming. Uh, it was really spectacular. So I prepared the route for that. And wow, I had, had no idea. We had three days of filming. And um, Ron Kalk and I, the day before Wolfgang showed up, um, we went over and we tried it and we realized this is going to be a problem because, mm. um, we had, again, we had three days of filming and you just, in 1989, that route was a lot harder than, um, really anything else. And it would have been some really bad, um, would have made for bad TV having us go up and fall <laughs> off, like, just not far off the ground on this thing. And, so anyway, that's once, you know, Wolfgang never even got on the thing. I, I tried it a few more times. Um, that was the same season I was working to bolt so that I, I wasn't putting much effort into just do it. I worked on it enough where I did the moves and I, and I just realized I don't have, I don't have physically what it takes to do this route. And so once I realized that it was totally an open project and, got it. um, yeah, Scott Franklin started working on it. Um, I know DDA Rabatou worked on it quite a bit, was very close yeah. to doing it. Yep. And um, yeah, so it was it was a completely open project. Got it, got it. What did you end up climbing on for the filming? Um, well, it was just kind of a mess because I then bolted, um, the filming was done on, the backbone on monkey face and oh, yeah. um, a route called sheer trickery. That was basically what happened. I went around and I bolted in a ret on the Northwest side of monkey face. Um, 
and that and put all the bolts in for that. And that route still hasn't been done. So as it mm. turns out, after just do it was too hard. I then went and bolted a route that was even harder. <laughs> fully prepared. It's probably five fifteen, and so then we got on that, and we were couldn't even come. You know, we weren't even close. So, wow. but there was a thirteen a uh, route above called the backbone. That I mean, they pieced together this um, this story. Yeah, but yeah, it was. Um, I didn't do a very good job of, um, I mean, I did a great job. I created just do it and, you know, but for the, for the, for the, <laughs> for show, the film, I, yeah, for the <laughs> film I, I, I had, I, I, my eyes were way bigger than my, our, my ability. Yeah. Well, before we move on with, with these questions, I'm curious, what was Wolfgang like? Oh, I loved Wolfgang. He was, uh, and I'd known him. Um, he'd been at Smith rock before that. I spent time with him in Germany um, back in 1986, just such a kind, gentle person, mm. um, humble. I mean, he, he was just like this, um, I don't know. I, he was the first European climber that I was really aware of that was a, like a hero of mine. Um, yeah. because he had come to the United States, I think in 1981 or 82, and I hadn't met him then, but you know, so he was somebody I definitely knew about. And, um, and when I met him, I, you don't know what you're going to expect, but I didn't expect somebody who was just so humble and, um, yeah, I don't know, just an absolute delight to be around. Yeah. That's so, what I've heard over yeah. and over. It's, it's yeah. cool that that just keeps getting reinforced. Yeah. He was competitive, you know, but again, it never, um, <laughs> I mean, anybody who got good at climbing had to want it. We had to be pretty, you know, driven. He was certainly driven, yeah. but there was, there was no way he was not. It was for him. It was. Um, I don't even know if he was would have been capable of pissing somebody off. That just <laughs> yeah, the gentle. Well, one of the other things I want to know here is there. There are lots of you know back in that era, chipping was accepted to some degree at least um and i've heard rumors of tribu chipping just do it and changing it from what it was when he first showed up so um i'm curious your take on that i was on you know just do it and then scott franklin started working on it and and then gb came and worked on it and when scott came back to it he said it was changed the route was mm, the holds were bigger it. things had changed i was never on the route after 1989 so got once it. i decided i can't do this thing and other people started working on it i i didn't go back so i don't know i had no way of knowing what the route was like after you know if there were changes um mm -hmm. you know i i'm sure that there were um Smith Rock, the rock is soft. It's any route, any preparation. You know, I don't think he was taking a power drill. Um, right, right. But I have just no idea what was what was done. I, I'm sure it was, you know, he, at least from what Scott said, some of the holds were improved. There was like a one finger pocket that had turned into a really good two finger pocket. And um, got it. I this is all you probably know about as much as I do about. Sure, sure. One of the things Adam Andra said was that. You know, while he doesn't condone chipping in any form, uh, the 
the changes made to some of the holds on just do it, he felt made it a better route um, that, you know, maybe there were some more comfortable holds or made the sequence a little better or whatever that was that made the route a little better. Well, I think that's, there's no doubt about that. Um, I don't think it was, it probably would have been a little bit harder, but um, t- what he did and to bolt or just do it done in 1992 was the right. It was, um, it's a good thing that it happened. It wasn't like something he should have saved for future generations. That route needed to happen. Yeah, I, I'm not at all trying to skewer Tribu here. I'm just, you know, just trying to get to the 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 bottom of the rumors that circulate all around. And yeah, I mean, I think if, it's true there were modifications to it, but yeah. in the process of any route, any route at Smith Rock, if you would wrap down at the very first time before it had ever been touched, and then you look yep. at it now, holds are, um, you know, a lot of times a pocket you can take a toothbrush and just. Yeah. Gouge out, you know, brush out a pocket. It's it's a yep. really really soft rock area, so it's not, um, you know, I I I think there were very very few holds on that thing that were just manufactured. I'm sure of right. that. I'm sure 99% uh, natural. Got it. Was there a working name for it? Like I know you were initially calling chain reaction like corner route number one or something. So what was there a working route for just or a working name for just do it? I think it was just the east wall, the east wall of monkey face or something like that. It wasn't um, they all yeah. just had oh, my working r- names were not very imaginative. And, <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, once I um, abandoned it, I don't know if Scott was referring to it as something I, I don't really I don't really know. It wasn't a route. It was a route that was named. The name Just Do It didn't come until after the route was done. You know, some right. routes have a name that yeah. they acquire fairly early. So, but Just Do It came up. It wasn't until 1992, after the ascent, that I heard that name. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite parts of the video of Andra onsighting it is watching you. Um, you know, you're there watching him do it. And... And it looks like like you're getting so much joy out of watching this happen. Can you tell me a little bit about that day and what it was like watching Adam do this thing first try? It was a great day. And I had just had, I had had a hip replacement, um, gosh, like five weeks before that. And so mm-hmm. I had been really confined to my home and was using a walker and, you know, finally got walking sticks. And I was, so I was just trying to, that's a depressing thing to, replaced and not be able to do anything and so all of a sudden um and i had heard that adam was going to be coming to smith rock and i'm not a social media person but i was he has a public facebook page and so for every morning for a while i was looking at his page and then one day all of a sudden it was like well that's mount jefferson in the background that's smith and so i knew he was there before i'd heard he was there so i just drove out um my walking sticks and it probably wasn't the best thing to do, but I just hobbled into the park, you know, to meet the guy. <laughs> yeah. And we just hung out pretty much. I was there every day he was climbing. And so by the time he did just do it, I, we were friends and he was, uh, we, I, I really enjoyed my time with him and, um, he's exact same age as my son. And mm-hmm. you just, I felt 
I don't know. There was something that I, I, I just felt really close to him. So when he went over to do Just Do It, um, I was rooting for him. I didn't think he was going to do it. I, I was, there's just so many places, you know, he tried sure. to do the bolt, his foot popped, you know, he looked great yeah. and it was a cold day. It was, it was just, so I, I just didn't, I don't know. I, I didn't uh, think I didn't, I, I probably would have given him like a 10% chance of succeeding on the route. And I was just over an vantage point kind of alone. Although as it turns out, I wasn't alone because I was getting filmed i didn't realize i didn't realize that but in some ways that made it better because if there would have been a camera in my face and i would have known it i think i would have been more stoic i don't think you would have seen yeah. what it actually meant to me yeah but um you know i'm watching him do it he gets through the lower part which is like 13d 14a but is really techy and a lot of people fall off there i mean yeah. that's kind of where i thought he would fall off but once he kept going getting higher and higher um, it was like, it was like a sporting event. Like you, you're yeah. a, a memory where I am seeing this, you know, the three point shot to win the championship sort of thing. It, it that's the way it felt and watching it. Um, it was the greatest thing I've ever seen in climbing, um, mm. period, certainly at Smith rock. And for me, there was just, um, there was a lot of emotion because there was so, there were so many memories of, like I could, as I was watching him, I was just kind of thinking about um, when I was growing up, when I first climbed Monkey Face, when I was, you know, aid climbing it when I was 15 years old, and then all the routes that I had done on Monkey Face, and yeah, just the whole lifetime of climbing at Smith. I, I was there when Chris Sharma um, did the route in 1997, and, and took his shirt around. off midway. Yeah, and so <laughs> and to. For me, it was just, um, I don't know. I just thought about uh, what he was doing and the context and how it fit into my whole, my life and, and the story of Smith Rock. And one thing that I, um, that I wrote about that was that, that Smith Rock by that time was not anywhere close to the, it, you know, Smith in the 80s, early 90s was like the place. And yeah. now it's more of a historical place. There's still not a 515 at Smith Rock. Right. But the fact that Adam Andra, he could go anywhere. You know, in the U.S., he could do anything, anywhere. But he chose to come to Smith Rock and do yeah. that. And it, it seemed like the, the fact that Smith Rock still had the drawing, the drawing power to get Adam to, you know, come here and, and, and do, just do it. Um, at that moment, at that day, the, this, the attention of the cl entire climbing world was back on Smith because that was the, yeah. whatever happened in the climbing world on November, whatever it was, um, in, in 2018, his ascent was, that was the best thing that was happening. And, uh, so it kind of just felt like, like. I don't know, just like bookends of this time from long ago. And then this, yeah. The, the past connecting to the future. And I, I admit I got a little emotional. I mean, I, I was watching him and just like, I, you know, and when he finally did it, I was, you know, I was the first one to scream out because I knew, you know, once he had this hold, it was over. And then there were probably 50 people watching and it was like, you know, he came down off the route, went back up the hill, gave me a huge hug. And it was just like, wow, this is wonderful. Like, yeah, this is so great.
what a what an amazing person to have like at the pinnacle of the sport right now like he he respects the history he's such a a kind person and a giving person and i just think it's amazing that he's the one leading the charge yeah i don't think i think if i would have been adam andra i don't think i would have been quite as kind and and (laughs) he is is just uh yeah he's just such a nice a nice person yeah. Well, you know, it occurs to me, Alan, that, you know, you bolted Just Do It for a a film project that at the time was going to, you know, show these climbers doing something groundbreaking. And you just didn't know it was going to be a film 30 years later uh, that, that happened there that showed something totally groundbreaking. No, that's, I've never looked at it that way, but that's, that's totally true. And that, that video has certainly been viewed a lot. Um, yeah, I, was, I wrote an article right after it came out when he, he put the video out of his commentary over top of it. And I wrote an article for our website that said, you know, Adam Andre just gave us a Christmas gift, this, this commentary on top of this video of this groundbreaking ascent is, is amazing. Oh yeah. I was surprised how many times I would be recognized just from being in an Adam Andre video. Wow. You you mentioned that you had spent a lot of time on monkey face and it's this like prominent feature. Like you can't go to the park and not, not remember that feature. And in the episode uh, about just do it, I, I talk about um, Tribu is coming down from the east face of monkey face your route uh, and that's when he sees the bolts of just do it and decides you know he sort of scopes it out and decides that's what the future is you know i read this in an article from you know the early 90s that he he says all this well that's interesting it's not maybe the way i remember it but how how do you remember it i'm curious well he had repeated the east face of monkey face um yeah. you know he had put he had fixed the nuts in it so you didn't have to put the gear in which which probably made it a bit easier but he repeated it before he did to bolt okay so and i don't think he went back to do it again mm. and when he would have lowered down in 1986 he would have seen the line over there but there would have been no bolts. The bolts were added three years later. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, the, the story's probably not exactly because um, the bolts couldn't have been there. Interesting. And there's no way, I don't think he ever would have gone back. Hey, this is Chris. I'm just breaking in here while I'm editing uh, because I think this is a really interesting moment in the conversation. Um, After Alan told me that that's not how it could have happened, I went back and did some research and he's absolutely right. There's, There's no way that the way I had written it is what's true. So I did change it in the episode, so you didn't hear that at all. You're just hearing this for the first time. And I'm leaving in the rest of what we talk about here because I think it's a really important take on uh, history and how it's recorded and then how it's passed on and eventually becomes fact, even though it may not be because our memories are so fallible. Um, And that's an important part of the show. So I'm leaving it in. All right. 
That that's really interesting, and and that's actually one of the reasons I I love um, you know digging into this history is not to correct it, but because our memories sort of they change over time, and you know Trabu said in an article back then, you know when I was lowering down, I saw this route that Alan had bolted, and you know so. I suspect he was just combining memories. Of, and I do that all. We all do. Yeah, it's we amazing. do. Absolutely. Like my memory for old things, like I still remember like exact sequences of routes from 40 right, years right. ago, things like that. I don't remember what I did yesterday, but I remember, <laughs> you know, I remember that. But I'm amazed how many times I will tell somebody a story with uh, you know talking to somebody else who was there and they will say, no, 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 you're getting this confused with, you know, and they'll give me this irrefutable evidence that I'm, I've got yeah. stories jumbled. Yeah. You know, yeah. People who I was sure, um, you know, somebody that blade me on a route. And then it was like, no, it was a totally different person. And it was like, I just, and I think that happens to all of us. So um, yeah. in some ways I, you know, maybe I should not have told you, I should have just let his, <laughs> it's a better <laughs> It's a no, better I think story. It's fine. What, he, what he is saying is a better story than me saying, no, that couldn't have happened because the bolts weren't there. No, I think that's totally fine. I, you know, I think we just have to accept that that's what happens with our memories. And, you know, we combine things to turn them into better stories. And, and that's what I do with this podcast. Like I'm trying to tell the, the interesting story. And I say at the end of every episode, you know, mm -hmm. like Todd Skinner always said, Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And and I really believe that. Like I want to build these things up. I don't want to, I don't want to like rewrite history, but I also yeah. am not so interested in the absolute facts that I'm gonna turn it into this dry thing. Because at this point, you're not gonna uncover the absolute facts. Right. Totally. Everybody has a kind of a different memory, different interpretation. And so a lot of times you you ask all the questions, you talk to everybody, and you just piece together the best the best version of the story and that yeah. just as accurate as anything else. Yep. Well, there are, there are so many different examples of pushing toward the future that have, that played out in Smith, you know, in the nineties. And I think that's a, a testament to your vision. And when I talked with Adam Andra, uh, for this podcast, we spent a bit of time talking about how important that that vision that you had was and is and, and how unique it is. Um, and in fact, I'd argue that, that it was at least in, in part your roots, your vision that helped Trabu become a major player that he was in the nineties. You know, was, certainly he came and did the roots, but without those roots, there would have been nothing there to do. And if I think he would have shown up and tried to do those roots as they were, he would have wrapped down and like, no, <laughs> there's nothing yeah. here because I don't think he would have spent the, you know, six, seven days of work cleaning and right. meticulously planning it. That's so, I mean, there's some truth to that, but, um, and if he hadn't, you know, what he did at Smith rock, what, what played a huge part in his legacy. Um, so, I mean, I might take a credit just to, for a little bit. I'm not the one that did the routes, but, um, yeah, we both owe something to each other for that because yeah. if he wouldn't have done those routes, the Smith rock story wouldn't have been quite as, as good as it was. 
And if those routes wouldn't have been there, his story wouldn't have been quite as good. So there was some mutual, um, you know, we were, it uh, benefited each each other. Yeah. What do you, what do you think beyond, you know, what you and Jibay were doing there? What was, what's the magic that Smith has that you sort of showed the world that, you know, made it the place it was in the nineties? And still is today. It's a good question because it's not, it's magical. I mean, it's a beautiful, magical place. It's, it's, um, I think I wrote in like my first history of my first Smith Rock guidebook that um, Smith Rock rose to fame despite the quality of the rock, not because mm. of it. And so mm-hmm. it was sort of unusual in that it wasn't, um, there were certainly you know, far better crags have been have been developed all around the world. Uh, Smith Rock was the perfect place for sport climbing to start in the U.S. for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons is that the rock was bad enough and where you had to, you couldn't use the uh, traditional approach of starting mm. from the ground and drilling and because you'd be encountering all these loose right, flakes and right. everything. And the rock also had to be soft enough so you could hand drill all the early sport routes. Right. Now, if, you, if some of these really overhanging limestone, you know, some of these amazing crags, good luck trying yeah. to hand drill, yep. you know, three and a half, four inch holes um, yeah. on an overhang, you know? So it was, it just kind of, it kind of worked. And um, there were just things that just kind of came together. It was just, there were a lot of people. I mean, it was not just that I was, you know, I had this vision and I made this happen. It was, I did have this vision and I was, you know, I did make things happen there, but um, everybody else had to enter the scene. You know, if, um, you know, if, if I'd never known Todd Skinner, it would have been a different, the story would have unfolded in a different way. Yeah. You know, all these people who were players, yeah, it's I could go on and on about about that, and I, I've I've put I've been thinking about that about why why things unfolded the way they did. Um, it was almost like it was meant to be because it wasn't like Smith Rock. It's some great climbing, but it's not just the most the best most natural um, climbing area in the world. It's it was kind of a junk pile. Yeah, well, I mean, we started this episode talking about Raven Tour and. You know, it's a, a similar situation, yeah. like not the, not the grand. Yeah. Visually um, much more impressive, but yeah. Rock quality Ravens tour was a step above Smith rock. Yeah. That's it's interesting. Rock quality. Yeah. So it's like right place, right time, right vision. You know, I think that's, that's yeah, what it comes Yeah. Everything to. kind of had to align. And, um, you know, by the time Again, if if um, people have asked me, like, well, if I didn't do some of the routes I did in '83 or '84, you know, way back then, and um, obviously they would have been done eventually. But things there was it was very time critical the way things lined up, and that's what is kind yeah. of amazing to me is all those routes done, every one of those routes done uh, twenty years later, it would be like so what. You know, another good climbing area. But when they happened in the sequence that they happened, uh, that um, 
yeah, I played a role and, but somehow it seemed like it was, it was so much bigger than any of the individuals. Yeah. It was really well, this collective thing. Well, thank you for the role that you played and, and for, you know, recognizing back then that some of the rules needed to be broken in order to push the, the sport forward. Even if, even if the American scene was like kicking and screaming in protest, you know, thank you for noticing that. And, and for being so quick to understand that the next generation was also pushing forward in their own way, you know, and accepting, being accepting of those sorts of things. Um, getting to introduce you this summer uh, here, in, here, at, here in Lander at the Climbers Festival was my last introduction of a long uh, climbing festival MC career. And and it was a real highlight for me, a really, really special moment. And I'm really glad that I got to do that. Um, and when we get to a season about the 80s on this show, you're going to play such a massive part. Um, oh, it'll, that, it'll be fun. I'll be looking forward to it. And again, your introduction, I felt it was like, you know, there's people there. I'm talking to everybody. You know, it's just kind of busy. It's also like, yeah, of course. Night. And then I was later, I was thinking, you know, that was the best, that introduction, that was the best introduction. Cause I've spoke, you know, I'm sure I've given a hundred climbing presentations and yeah. I was like, that was probably the best introduction I'd ever received because it wasn't just something that somebody had, you know, Googled and read. It was like this original, you know, very well thought out and well presented introduction. And I, so I really appreciated that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that, Alan. I put a lot of time into those because I respect what what you've done. Um, and thank you for your time here. I, I appreciate it so much. Absolutely. Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect and probably some you don't, including some great photos of Alan Watts in tights from the 80s and 90s. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. If you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review and tell everyone you know at the crag, at the gym, at parties where everyone is just talking about climbing anyway and share it all over your social medias and together we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents one decade at a time. Secret stoners. You know, I'm a little, I'm still a little amazed at how like calm and cool Alan was about uh, Jibe stealing Badman from him in the way that he did. Um, I suspect that in my 20s, I would have handled it pretty differently um uh 
And I guess a lot of you probably would have as well. Uh, a lot of people have gotten way more angry for way smaller things. Um, but ultimately, I, I love Alan's class and uh, the the way he thinks through things. And, and I love his perspective of the timing of how things happened in Smith. Uh, that's really cool to hear. He also sent me a few photos just tonight. I'm recording this, you know, the night before this thing drops. Um, just tonight, he sent me some photos that I'm posting in the Patreon right now that are, uh, one is a photo of Alan jokingly choking Jibay. The other is of Jibay at the party. Both of these are from the party uh, that I talk about in the beginning of the Jibay Tribute episode, uh, the Just Do It episode. And the photo was taken immediately after he finished his 80 pull-ups. He was handed a beer. He chugged it. He threw the can to the floor, um, I guess, in victory. Uh, and you can really see it in his face in the photo. It's pretty amazing. Before I even knew what the photo was or what moment it was, I was like, oh, he's on something in this photo. Um, so you guys should go to the Patreon check those out um shout out to our third legend supporter jason we appreciate you and if you guys have not joined it's free or you can support if you'd like there's a, a ten dollar a month uh support option there um, there are going to be bonus episodes coming over there, bonus content, things like that. But for now, go check out these photos. They're free for everybody to see over on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash secretstonersclub, all one word. Next week, I've got another bonus episode for you. Um, uh, there's one thread that I've been fascinated with through reading about this season, and that's the rivalry between the French climbers and the British climbers who, um, you know, it seems like the Germans were kind of quietly doing their own thing and being badasses and the French and the Germans or the French and the British both had their egos involved a little. How could you not? You know, we're, we're 20 something year old kids at the top of the game. So, um, it's a really cool story, I think, the back and forth, especially between Ben Moon and Jibé Tribu. So that is next Monday. Hope you all have a fantastic weekend. I'm going to go post those photos in the Patreon right now for you to check out. See you next week.